0: Welcome to the BASE Church Message Podcast. If you want to learn more about BASE and who we are, check us out online at base.church. Our prayer is that today's message encourages you, challenges you, and draws you closer to Jesus. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the message. If we've never met, my name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor here. You saw the location pastors up here um, just a moment ago. and Can we thank Pastor Nate and Emily just for all that they... um, they do here. They're wonderful. They're, um, I've been leading with Nate now for a decade. Uh, that's crazy to say. Yeah, same with Alicia. About a decade? Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. We're not young anymore, Alicia. We actually are. I hung out with somebody much older than me this past week. We're still young. Okay, yeah. um, so we're going to tackle a light topic tonight. Um, something that, it's a, snooze, it's a snoozer. It's a bit of a snoozer. We're going to talk about sexuality. So here's the good thing, is if you're feeling a little tired, you're debating whether or not to come to the 8 p.m., and you're like, I'm not sure how this is going to go, I can guarantee you this is going to be exciting, <laughs> because you just never know what's going to come out of my mouth next, right? And it's like, we, this could go anywhere. I'm not going to give you any indications of where the ending of this message goes, because we're going to land the plane when it's time to land the plane. But I really believe that it, we need to take some time with this. We're going to talk about sexuality, and came across this quote, um, and I think it's, a, it's important. It addresses why we're going to take time with the topic tonight. And just uh, the, the writer said this, shallow answers to complex questions are offensive to our God-given minds. And they fail to shape our hearts into being more like Jesus. See, what you don't need me to do getting up here tonight is just to say, hey, the Bible's very clear on sexuality and move on. Because the reality is, is we're not sure if the Bible's clear about that. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not, some of you are like, uh-oh, where, see, we're going to. We're going to keep you guessing for a little while here. Um, I, I believe that if we take time with Scripture, it becomes clear. Absolutely. But we're growing up in a generation that, um, that has only ever known one side of sexuality. Uh, and, and I even mean those of us that are a little bit older. When I grew up, um, same-sex marriage wasn't legal in, in Canada. Like I remember debates in my living room around this. I remember debates in parliament. I remember things like that. Like, like, Same-sex marriage wasn't always legal. And I think for some of us, it's like that's a crazy concept that it wouldn't be allowed. So here we are, and, and we have to understand that, that all of us are coming at this top of, of sexuality from a variety of different um, paradigms, views, whatever else. But we're coming from a, a, a very clear worldview that says that, that really when it comes to sexual things, anything goes. And when you come to the Bible, the one thing that is specifically clear is that that's not the ethic around sexuality in scriptures. Now, we're not going to get to what the Bible says about sexuality just yet, but we do know that the Bible doesn't just say everything goes. Uh, If you read the Bible really quickly, it becomes even more evident that not everything goes because God's like often really dealing with his creation when anything goes. And it was scary to me. I read the Bible in 30 days uh, back in December and I was like reading it really quick and I was like, oh my gosh, like... I didn't realize how serious God was about certain things within Scripture. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk about sexuality. I'm gonna come uh, and and uh, and address this. Um, But when I was writing this message, I wrote it about a week and a half, two weeks ago. I was writing it in Starbucks, and um, I just thought it was kind of funny because Starbucks in some ways is like the sanctuary of our world. And if this is the sanctuary of God, and this is like a sanctuary of the church and Christianity, like Starbucks is the sanctuary of our world. And what do I mean by that? It's just that like Starbucks embodies the values of our culture, or at least it virtue signals the values of our culture. Okay, I'm going to tell a few different stories about Um, Traveling because I've been doing a lot of traveling recently. And yesterday I was in the airport and I went to a Starbucks and uh, and I had to laugh because there was this big sign where you were to grab your drinks and it said, um, uh, uh, recycle with us. Get better at taking care of the environment. And I don't have a problem with taking care of the environment. I was born on Earth Day. I love taking care of the environment. Like every, you gotta imagine, every birthday growing up, I picked up garbage. I love the Earth. I call her Mother Nature. I don't call her Mother Nature. It is not a person. But um, I, I don't disagree with the sign. I just disagree with virtue signaling. And what I mean by this is, you know, as I'm reading this sign, they literally hand me my cookie in a plastic bag in a uh, in a paper bag. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you should help yourself. <laughs> like, I'm happy to just, like, take a cookie, but you want to put it in two forms of packaging. Um, I've been asking for venti waters. This is a... a um, a traveling hack, is everywhere you go in the world, like, water is one of the things that actually makes me sick. Like, even if, if I'm in a place where water is fine, different kinds of water, just in different... So, I have... i very careful. I drink bottled water everywhere I go, no matter if I'm here or, like, in Ottawa. Definitely in Ottawa, I'm drinking bottled water. And so, you never know what's in the water in Ottawa. But... Um, when you're in the airport, one of the things that I do is I just go to Starbucks because Starbucks has the same filtered water no matter what Starbucks you go to. And the, re- like, the reason for this is uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, wanted to make sure that the coffee tasted the same everywhere you went. And so he made sure that the water tastes that you make coffee from the same everywhere that you went. Filters it the same way. all the rest. So I'll go there and ask for a venti water and they'll never give me a venti water. They're like, we're not allowed to give out venti waters. And I'm like, okay. Two grandes. And they're like, Okay. And I'm like, what? what? And they put these Grande waters right next to the Help Us Recycle. And I'm like, just give me, like, just give me one cup of water. Like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. But this is this is kind of like what what our world's world's done, right? Is 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 we like to virtue signal that we are we're, we're doing d- doing things that maybe we're not actually doing. And so as I'm writing this I, in, in a Starbucks, I was. Um, Writing this message in Starbucks, I was like, "Man, this is such an interesting environment." Uh, the per- the individual taking my order was a transgender individual, and later on, I was sitting at my table and I had a- had some resources around uh, sexuality, and they came up and they were asking people how-, how they were doing, and I like I like turned over the book so fast. I was <laughs> like, and it wasn't because I was ashamed that I was reading and-, and trying to understand what God says around the topic of sexuality. It's just I didn't want them to to judge me based on what I was reading, probably the same way they didn't want to be judged, based on my impressions of them, right? Like, like we're living in a day and an age where sexuality is a hot topic, but there's not a lot of clarity around it. It is my belief, to my core, that what our generation, our generation, I'm in the same generation as you, our generation, what it is looking for is clarity around these things, not necessarily agreement. Like, that's my conviction. You might think on social media based on the polarization, that actually people just wanna debate and, and stand on their arguments. I re- that is not my lived experience in, uh, in, in Canada. The reality is, is that this is the fourth time I'm gonna be speaking this message, and there might be somebody angry here, shoot me a message, that's fine. But like, people are just thankful for clarity. And so that's what we're gonna seek to grab and, and gain out of, this, uh, out of our time together. So we're going to start off in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, three to five. Okay, First Thessalonians. Paul is writing a church. Uh, writing a church. He started a church. He's writing a letter to that church in Thessalonica. He's writing this to them. We got to understand this is a church that Paul has started. Uh, if you think the churches that you've been a part of are jacked up or messed up, or you're listening to YouTube preachers, anybody listen to YouTube preachers? Stop. Sorry, Jake, you put up your hand too quick. Uh, (laughs) But like, just stop. Like, again, social media is feeding you polarization. It's not feeding you like what people have faithfully believed for thousands of years. But when it even comes to just people's view on church and the the belief that the church ought to be a certain way, I look at a lot of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches he started, and you got to understand, the church was jacked up. Why? Because the church is made up of people. Are people perfect? No, not one. Only Christ. Churches are messy. And so what he's um, writing to is, his, you know, church, Thessalonica, and he says this in verse 3. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Let's put a pin in it. Let's really quickly explore the concept of justification and sanctification. Um, we can't begin to understand what Paul means by being sanctified if we don't know what it means, okay? So justification, just a really quick lesson on this, means being made right with God, It literally means being saved and being made right with Jesus, like being made right with God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is being made like God. That's an important distinction because we get really legalistic sometimes as Christians or sometimes in our friend groups or sometimes in our home bases or even in some of our churches across North America where sometimes we try to be made like God before we're made right with God. And that, that, is, that is very important to get those in the right order because we can't be made like God until we're right with God, right? right? Like, like there's no possible way to start understanding the world as God understands it until we actually are received by God. But so many times what we see trying to happen is we're trying to tell the world that they gotta clean themselves up before they come to God. It can't be done. We have to come to God and have him save us before he can sanctify us. So he's writing this to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, what is the most important thing that he tells them they need to be sanctified in, the church in Thessalonica? That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy. That word holy, we've been singing about it. It's what the angels are singing. The word holy means set apart. We should learn to set apart your own body, or sorry, in a way that is set apart and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans, which literally means who do not know God. And that in this matter, not to get anybody in trouble, but it's distracting. Hey guys, you're talking a little bit too loud. (laughs) If it's any other building, that could definitely happen. It would be totally fine, but these are like thin and I can hear through the drapes. Um, Uh, who do not know God, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So this is our starting place on sexuality. It seems to be really important to God, which is good news. Because it's actually really important to all of us in this room. Like sexuality is a big conversation topic for all of us. So it's, it's actually encouraging that it's important to God. You know, one of the things that's unfortunate about the conversation around sexuality is I, I think that because we've grown up in an environment where we just, we just believe that, that it is what it is, um, we don't always take it too seriously. Uh, on... on uh, uh, on all of my travels, I always struggle with the beginning of, of the airplane ride where they are telling you to like, do all these things before the plane takes off, right? So I'm like sitting there and I get, I get like, in trouble for this all the time. I get myself all set up in my seat. I can't afford anything but the back of the plane, and it's usually by the washrooms, and that's the worst because it's just like, oh my gosh, what are people doing in there? And, and every time, like just before we're about to take off, somebody's tapping me on my shoulders because i my headphones in, and they're like, hey sir, can you put your tray up? And I'm always like, how do I forget this? Every single time. But what's worse than them telling you to put up your tray is them telling you to like turn off your phone. I've, I never t- turn off my phone like onto airplane mode. Here's my theory, is that if my phone not being on airplane mode has the potential to take down this aircraft, we have bigger problems. I do wanna say that I realized how bad that is and I committed to the 6 p.m. I will now put my phone on airplane mode because maybe it would, I don't know, but maybe I should start doing that. But you know what I mean? Similarly, with, with seatbelts. like, they're doing this whole, like, safety talk and everything else and I'm sitting there and they're like, you know, please listen to our safety talk and I'm like, absolutely not. I know what happens in a plane crash. This is for your insurance providers. This is not for me. We get in a plane crash, I don't need to know anything. I'm not alive. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I don't care if I'm at the front of the plane when I die or in my seat, so the seatbelt doesn't matter, you know what I mean? But a place where it does matter, seatbelt to me, is when I'm on a roller coaster. Okay? If I'm on a roller coaster, I used to love roller coasters, used to love them. But as I've gotten older and I have kids, all of a sudden, roller coasters freak me out. Like, I don't want to leave four kids fatherless. And so I'm just like, I don't know if I should be on this. I probably have memories of my uncle, Rob, uh, waiting in line at Canada's Wonderland with me as a kid. And he would love to play a joke on other kids that were on the drop zone. And he would yell at them. He'd yell at them. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. Your seatbelt's not done up. Your seatbelt's not done up. And the kid would be like, oh, my God. And they'd be like. I'm like, that's awful. I've been sanctified. My sanctification process has been, like, pretty good. Like, I'm, I'm, so when it comes to roller coasters, when they come around to check your seatbelt, I'm like, I'm like, check it twice. <laughs> you know, be like Santa Claus, check it twice. Like, put that lap belt down. I, the last thing I want to have happen is I'm on a roller coaster, I'm going over a hump, and I'm just like, whoo. It's <laughs> just like, gone. Brandon's done. So it's interesting because context matters. And the reason that I bring this up because, is because the reality is that often when we talk about sexuality, unless we actually believe it matters, What does it matter what the Bible says about it? And we live in a generation that really believes that sexuality is personal. Keep people, politicians, religion out of the bedroom, out of my pocket, and everything will be fine. And yet it's interesting because it seems like God talks about those things sometimes most of the time. (laughs) Right? When it says, stay out of my wallet, it's like God's like, actually, I'm going to talk about that more than faith and prayer combined. Why? Because these things have our hearts. So unless we begin to understand that these things are actually way more about our our safety in this life than we actually realize, we won't tune into the things that God has to say. You realize that God does have a standard, and we have to understand that it's important before we'll ever value it. And so let's read a little bit about God's standards, because, again, I hesitate to say that it's clear, because in 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 a world that literally believes that, that it's clear on its sexual ethic, which it's not. People are confused. I, I, I do want to say, and, and this isn't to start a fight, but the, the idea that we would say love is love is, is contradictory or, or confusing in and of itself. I don't I have a problem with celebrating love, but to say love is love is a is a is a definition error. We can't define something by the very word. We're living in confusing times when it comes to I can't say it was and this is always my example because it's the only thing I can see, but if I was to ask somebody in the room like, "Can you define that chair?" and you were to say, "Well, a chair is a chair." Well, that doesn't help me understand what that thing is. We have to go a level deeper. We have to ask for more clarity. And this is one of the things that the Pharisees do when they come up to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, you'll see it on the back screen in a moment, verses 1 to 12, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he had just preached a message, he left Galilee and went into into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, here's the thing that we have to understand about this passage is ancient Israel had been having a debate for centuries over what Moses meant that you could divorce a woman for any and every reason if they were displeasing to the husband. There's a debate raging. We don't see this in the text because we don't realize that they're trying to trick Jesus into taking a side. Ancient Israel was following two different rabbis on this topic. One rabbi said that the word displeasing meant that, that, um, that the woman had committed adultery, and therefore adultery was the only reason why a man could divorce his wife. The other rabbi was arguing, and a lot of people held to this belief, that actually it was for any reason whatsoever. Anything that made the man displeased, he could divorce their wife. And there's a whole group of people that were following that. So when the Pharisees asked this question, we just think, oh, what an what a interesting question. And yet what they're trying to do is, hey, in the midst of our cultural conversation on sexuality, pick a side. So listen to what Jesus has to say. You think, sometimes we just think like, oh, Jesus had it easy. He, like everybody kind of, no, 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 no. He had to walk through the cultural melee just like all of us. It wasn't easy. He said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, <laughs> but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So, here's the interesting thing when it comes to the Bible's discourse on sexuality. And specifically what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus isn't just offensive to a specific type or brand or genre of sexuality. He's offensive to it all. I think it's interesting because even when I mention that we're going to talk about sexuality, I think a lot of us, our minds went to, oh, he's going to talk about the LGBTQ community. Why is it that every time that we want to talk about things within Scripture that are difficult, we're always pointing to somebody that's struggling with something that maybe we aren't? And that's not to assume that nobody here is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender identity. I'm not assuming that that's not in the room. But for a lot of us, we're pointing outside of this and, oh, he's going to speak a message to bring clarity to the sexual immorality that, are, that is outside of these walls. No, no, no. You realize that Jesus is not only offensive to those outside of these walls. He's offensive to us. You see some of the things he addressed just like, we just read it. Oh, that's Jesus. Yeah, I've heard this passage before. But he's offensive to those who have been through divorce or children of families that have been through divorce. He's offensive to our gender um, identity conversation when he says he made them male and female. He's offensive to our views on marriage and even sex outside of marriage or living with a partner outside of marriage and those sorts of things. He's offensive to our ideas around sex. He says, but one flesh. It's a very theologically uh, labeled term. He's, he's, um, He's offensive to those of us that have committed adultery. He's offensive to those of us that are looking at pornography. He's offensive to eunuchs. And eunuchs were either castrated males or they were born without reproductive um, organs uh, as males. And he says that they're born that way. So he's, con- he's actually kind of offensive to hardline conservatives around the whole question of, can you be born a certain way? Interesting. Because when we step into the conversation about sexuality, we so often point the finger at somebody else. like, this conversation is about somebody that's dealing with this or a cultural conversation that's going on. And the reality is is that it's for every single person in this room. For every person that's struggling with uh, pornography, for everybody who has had sex outside of marriage, for everybody who's sleeping with somebody who's not their spouse, for everybody, every person in this room has been impacted by a, a, a sexual ethic that is not a standard that God set out in his own scriptures. So now that we're all offended, let's take a look. (laughs) Let's take a look at what God is trying to set a standard for, okay? We have to look at it in two different ways. We have to look at the micro, what Bible passages say about this for sure. But we also need to look at the macro, and the macro is arguably more important. There are six passages within Scripture that deal with sexuality um, specifically. They're, They're referred to in the debate around sexuality as clobber passages, the reason that they're referred to this way is because often they're used to hit people upside the head in arguments around sexuality. And yet it should concern us that there is only six. If you're trying to build an argument off of six in the court of law, that's not gonna hold up. And that's why we can't just take a micro view. We actually need to take a macro view if we're gonna search for God's heart and all of this. What do I mean by a macro view? Let's read what Jesus said here and trace the grand narrative throughout all of Scripture, not only what he specifically said in this passage. The first thing is this, is that God created them male and female. Now, I'm not just going to say, see, it's clear. In fact, if you were to look into this a little bit further, it's a little less clear. What makes it more clear is that Jesus is actually putting together two different Verses and, and passages within the Bible, he's not actually just sharing one consistent verse. That's really important. Because at scripture, when Jesus repeats things, he's, he's actually driving for clarity in every single instance. There's not an instance where Jesus doesn't repeat himself and try to be very clear on that specific topic. He brings two passages together um, that have to do with a male and a female. And he brings them together to not only emphasize the, 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 the emphasis of male and female in sexuality, but also to highlight the created order at the beginning of Genesis. What I mean by this, the first macro idea that we have to kind of understand is that everything that God has done in this world is complementary. It's complementary. If you look and you trace even just how God created the world, on one day he creates the light and the darkness. Another day he creates the water and the land. On another day, he creates the birds in the sky and the animals on the ground. You can see that there's this complementary nature to who God is. And then on the day he creates humans, he creates them male and female. There's this, there's this macro narrative, alternate scripture that's not just specific, but it's actually also just the narrative in which the Bible assumes all throughout scripture. The second macro principle that we have to pay attention to is when Jesus refers back to the beginning. And refers back to the beginning in saying that you heard that at the... Be- you Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female. Now, this is really important because have you ever been given a, a uh, book to read and uh, somebody says like, oh, you got you to gotta really get into it. It's going to take you about 10 chapters to get into it. Anybody ever had this? My brother-in-law gave me this book. It was this thick. And he's like, hey, it's going to take you three quarters of the way to get through. But then once you get into it, it's a really good story. And I'm like... I'm like, dude, I'm out. Like, if I've got to read three quarters of a book to enjoy a quarter of it, like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not, like, it's... but Nate says it's worth it because he's read it. And the reality is, is that how many books are in this series? You took a long time to answer. Um, it wasn't that important of a question because I'm never going to read it, Nate. And I know every time we talk about this, you're like, you got to read it. I'm not going to read it. So it's not just setting it up for like that book. It's, I get it, it's setting it up for four books. So it's actually probably the equivalent of what I'm talking about. Okay, I get it, maybe I'll read it. So, but, but authors will do this where they take, and, and the reason that somebody says, you gotta take some time to get into it, is they're setting up the context in which the rest of the story comes. And it's assuming that once it's set up the context that you understand what's happening, and that's why it painstakingly sets up the context for so long. Anybody give up on their Bible and reading plan around March every year? Why? So starting to get into some of the context that needs to be set up in Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like, my gosh. If I got to read Leviticus again, I'm, I have to. I'm a pastor. I just want to download a Bible in a year plan that removes Numbers and Leviticus. And some of 1 and Second Chronicles. You know, like... I just, but it's setting up the context. Jesus refers back to the beginning because he's referring to something that is just assumed all throughout Scripture. The reason that there's so few passages on this that's within Scripture is it's just assuming that everybody understands all throughout Scripture that marriage is between a male and a female. And I'm not saying that, again, as a clobber passage. I'm, I'm, I'm creating the, the picture of what the church has believed to uh, uh, what the church has believed around traditional marriage and sexuality for years. The third thing when it comes to the macro view that we have to pay attention to is that the standard goes up. It doesn't actually go down. So Jesus has asked this question, right? He said, what what would you say? Moses permitted, uh, uh, Moses allowed us to divorce for these reasons. And he says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Some of the laws that we read in Leviticus are a response to a very, um, a, a very rebellious and barbaric culture. And it was just moving the needle on morality. And that might sound interesting to some of us, but some of the passages specifically around the one on divorce that is being talked about in this passage, it is not God's view on divorce. It was just better than what was happening. We have to understand that in the context where men could just leave women at any point and women and children were never valued, the fact that Moses would say, actually, you can't just leave your wife for any and every reason, was elevating the position of women in that context and in that culture. Was it God's best? Absolutely not. When we Look at Leviticus. do you have questions like I do around, why would you allow that, God? Absolutely. But God is moving the needle to the point where Jesus would come, and the first movements around empowering women would come into the Christian church, because Jesus had elevated the position of women so much that all of a sudden they were seen as equals with men made in the image of God together with men. It's fascinating. But what we don't have here is Jesus saying, "Yeah, you could divorce for any reason, one better." Don't even get married. Do whatever you want. No, 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 no. He actually ratchets up the expectation and the standard of marriage. This is the thing you'll find about Jesus, and this is why I would find it really hard to interpret anything around sexual um, standards when it comes to Jesus as anything less than the traditional view of marriage, is because anything that Jesus talks about on any ethical dilemma throughout scripture, he's always elevating it. He's not, he's not taking it down. Think about it. He says in, in um, we love this teaching of Jesus, but, it, but uh, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's saying, hey, you heard that it was said um, around sexuality that you can divorce somebody if they, if they committed adultery. I, I, or <laughs> you've heard that it was said that it's adulterous if you sleep with somebody who's not your spouse. He's saying, I tell you that if you look at somebody lustfully, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. This is the interesting thing about Jesus is that he's both the burden lifter but also the standard raiser it's this interesting thing and we're going to get to in a moment why that should be comforting to us but it's important to realize so that's the macro once we understand the macro we can actually jump into the micro of this passage and take a quick look this is what the traditional view of marriage within scripture has been for thousands of years and it's built off of these two passages within genesis reaffirmed all throughout scripture and it's important for us to understand because as we make our way through the very human aspect of this conversation in just a moment, we have to understand what we're working with. First of all, marriage is defined as being between humans. And honestly, like, I would have thought that that's, that wouldn't be um, controversial, but, but it is becoming that, interestingly it's important to understand that when Jesus says that it's, that he made them male and female, he's referencing a passage in Genesis 1 where he's saying they're made in his image. That he created humans and that marriage is between two humans. Secondly, it says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to a woman. A being singular, not plural. What Jesus is reaffirming is that marriage is not only between humans, but it's between one human and one human. He also says that it's between a male and a female. And and lastly, the fourth thing is he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this is where we get the till death do us part. So this is where the traditional view and ethic on sexual morality within scripture comes from, is that marriage is between one human and another human, male and female, till death do us part. Now that's the standard. That's the standard that Jesus sets. The reality is is that this is offensive to a lot of us in the room it's offensive to our culture and in some ways this is where conversations around even is the bible or christianity homophobic begin to find themselves and, and I would just submit to us today is that the bible is no more and christianity is no more homophobic than it would be divorcophobic or pornographicophobic you you get what I'm catching the standard around sexuality doesn't just apply to one community, it applies to all of the deviancies outside of this sexual ethic. So when we have this conversation and, and, and researchers are trying to find a, a, a case that, they're trying to find a sample group that they can measure the effects of pornography against, they're trying to find a group of people that have never looked at pornography. Do you realize that, that we, <laughs> that they I believe this is true, um, I'll say it this way because this is, this is certainly true. Most um, studies on pornography have not been able to find a sample size large enough of a group of people that haven't looked at pornography in order to measure the effects of pornography on the brain. This is the common thread on university campuses in studying pornography is they can't find sample sizes. Do you know what that means? All of us in this room, most of us, 99% of us, maybe 95 are outside of the standard that God has set around sexuality. So all of a sudden, we get to enter into this conversation not pointing fingers, but asking God, what do we do in missing the standard? And how can we realign ourselves with the way in which you want us to live throughout our lives? That becomes the grand question. I have no issue talking about sexuality within Scripture. I have no issue talking about marriage being being between one male and one female because it's an issue that hits close to home for me. And if I could be honest for a second, sometimes I think people are like, man, you, like, how could you say that or whatever else? And I'm not just going to say something like, well, I have gay cousins, which I do. I have 57 cousins, and there's a number of them that deal with same sex attraction. A number of them. I'm not just going to take a token group and be like, I know what they're going through. No, no, no. It's even more personal. If it wasn't for God in my life, I wouldn't, I don't think I would be monogamous. That's the reality, like the whole conversation around polyamory, if I wasn't saved by Christ when I was 15 and consistently made decisions from that point, I don't know if I would be faithful to one person. Does that make sense? Like, like I feel like I can speak to this because I know the nature of Brandon and the nature of Brandon outside of the standard of Christ is not monogamous to one person. I know that through the temptations that I have. I know that through the things that the enemy tries to use to get me off my, off my game and off of, off of following God in my life. I know what I was like when I was 15 years old. And the reality is, is that I've had to struggle with my own sexual identity, or, or whatever we might, might want to call that, and yet I still, as a Christian, have to approach God and go, how can I submit to your standard and make consistent decisions that see your best come into my life? But what happens when we don't make the standard? This is where the good news comes in, actually, because I don't know if there's anybody in the room that fits and hits God's standard for sexual morality. Can we read one more passage? And then what I want to do is whip through some practical takeaways for everybody in the room when it comes to what do we do when we miss the mark on God's standard for sexuality. We're going to read it. It's going to take a minute and a half. I'm going to sit down because I'm tired. I wanted to fall asleep at 844. At 919, I might just fall asleep. Like I might sit down and halfway through fall asleep and you guys can just read the rest of it and go home, okay? Wake me up when someone's closing the doors, okay? Here we go. John chapter 4. Remember, the passage that we just read was about Jesus talking about divorce. He set the standard. We've got to keep that in mind. He set the standard around, what were we talking about? Not same-sex attraction. We weren't even talking about pornography. We were talking about divorce. Okay. So here's the story. It says, now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, which is hilarious, why does the Bible put stuff like this in there? It's like the Pharisees, literally, they're having a little competition about whose church is bigger. Jesus is turning to baptize more disciples than John. This is what it goes on to say. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. It's like, honestly, there's, there's no re- actual reason for this to be included, but it is. It's kind of funny. Or I'm just a Bible nerd, and I'm the only one there. I can also, I can also accept that. So he left Judea and went back Uh, once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Oh, so they can see me more. Can we give it up for Taylor? (laughs) By the way, if I was to die, give the church to Taylor. That guy is such a good guy. If there's anybody... Any single lady sleeping on Taylor, and not saying sleeping with, sleeping on, like they're missing out on the opportunity. Uh, you're missing out on an opportunity. Be very careful. Be very careful with the wording there. Be very careful. Taylor is just the best. He's also a boxer. He's really tough. He's really tough. I wouldn't fight him. Okay. Thank you, thank you Taylor. <laughs> that feels like I did the opposite. Like I slapped him in the face and then thanked him. I'm, I'm sorry, Taylor. Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God "'and who it is that asks you for a drink, "'you would have asked "'and he would have given you living water. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'you have nothing to draw with, "'and the well is deep. "'Where can you get this living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob "'who gave us this well "'and drank from it himself, "'as uh, as did also his sons and his livestock?' "'Jesus answered, "'Everyone who drinks this water "'will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks the water I give them "'will never thirst.' Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. (laughs) Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Or as our culture would say, I am him. Jesus is him. So here's where it gets encouraging. Almost every one of us has missed out on the standard that God sets, that Jesus reaffirms around his sexual ethic. We've missed the standard. In the midst of bringing clarity, God is not meaning to bring condemnation. He actually meets us with compassion. He has just set, we have just read that he has set the standard for divorce. And when we read of him talking to a person that has experienced divorce, not once, not twice, not three, not four, not five times, but still the person she's with is not her husband, what does he meet her with? His Bible and hits her over the head with it? This is what the Bible says about divorce. It's clear. Get your act together. Does he clean house? Does he disassociate with her as the Jews were doing? No. He meets with her. He talks with her. He meets her not only with clarity, but with compassion. When you miss the mark with Jesus, the first thing you must do is allow Jesus to meet you at the well. For all of us that have missed the standard, the first thing we have to do is we have to allow Jesus to meet us at our proverbial well. This whole passage started with, uh, with saying that he had to go through Samaria. That's a lie. Most Jews went around Samaria because they didn't want anything to do with what they called half-breeds. No, 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 Jesus walked through Samaria to meet with this woman. He meets this woman not just, not just at the well, but at noon. The time of the the day where the sun was the highest in the sky and it was so hot that nobody else would be there. So that this woman that was caught in the shame of her sin, that she'd go there and not see anybody, let alone a man, let alone a Jew, let alone the Messiah. And yet that's exactly where Jesus meets her. In the midst of what you have going on in your life, no no matter what it is, no matter how you've missed the standard that God has set, allow Jesus to meet you at the well. And I'm I'm wording that very carefully. I don't mean go meet Jesus at the well. No, I'm saying let Jesus meet you at your well. We always think that it's us going to do the work. Do you realize that Jesus is drawing you unto himself? You're not drawing Jesus unto yourself. He meets you where you are in the midst of your shame and your brokenness, in the midst of avoiding the things that are going on in your life, in the midst of missing the standard. And he sits there and he shows you compassion because he not only has a standard, but he has grace. Secondly, I only have three points, and they're going quick now, right? Secondly, allow the surgeon to do his work. Allow the surgeon to do his work. The surgeon is, we have to understand that God wants to do a work in us, but we have to allow him to do the work. If you call me to come do something, in your house, make, like fix it. If I came to fix something in your house with the walls or whatever else, you'd have to hire somebody else after me to fix what I fixed. Does that make sense? i do such a hack job that it wouldn't serve you at all. This is what we have to understand about Jesus is that he's a surgeon that is good. He understands who we are. He understands the situation. He's skilled. He knows his subject, and he's careful when he goes in, but we must allow him to do it if we're to allow ourselves to draw closer to the life that he has for us. He says to this woman, go get your husband. Go get your husband. I if Jesus walked in the room right now and he's like, I'll talk to you, but first go get your boyfriend. You're like, which one? (laughs) Don't act like that's not normal in our culture. Love is blind? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Can I give you like a really guilty confession for a moment? And I never thought these words would come out of my life or my my mouth ever. But (laughs) I watched an entire season of Love is Blind. (laughs) And that's not the worst part. I did it by myself. And I didn't tell him. I told her after. I was so like, right? I'll meet with you, but first go get your boyfriend. Well, I don't know. I'm keeping my options open right now. Exactly. Hey, I'll talk to you, but first, 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 I want you to, to close out. That tab on your, on your private tab, there is no tabs there. You're right, there's no tabs. You closed them out before we started the conversation. You did that last night so you could come to church and feel better about yourself. See, he doesn't say these things to inflict pain on her. He does it to be like a a surgeon with precision. Hey, we're gonna deal with the thing that is keeping you from the life that you deserve, the life that you need, the life that you can only find in me. Allow Jesus to be the surgeon and to do his work in your life. He is delicate, he is careful, and and him revealing things in your life is not condemnation, but it is bringing you closer to the life that he, he offers you. Third, Allow him to quench your thirst. Can we have the band come up? Allow him to quench your thirst. We all miss the mark of of the sexual ethic that God lays out within Scripture. And here's what I need you to hear. Getting on board with the sexual ethic will not quench your thirst. (laughs) That's the thing about our sinful nature is just finding yourself in a marriage as described within Scripture is not going to do the thing. It's not going to be the thing that quenches your thirst in that area. I play hockey almost every Saturday, and I love it. I know I'm getting too old to play, and men's leagues or whatever. But I, I love to play hockey, and one of the things that I, I've um, I've gotten in a bad habit of doing, is uh, is afterwards I I go out and I and I go quench my thirst. I I like to go and buy a drink, and. Uh, It's because I don't drink any water when I'm on the bench. And so as soon as I'm done, I'm like, I got to go quench my thirst. So I go out and buy a drink. And some of you are thinking I buy an alcoholic drink. No, no, no. I buy something much worse than that. I get a Coke Zero. I take take myself from Rim Park and I drive straight to McDonald's. And I say, what is the biggest cup that you have? And they say, sir, it's the same size as the one you asked for last week. Give it to me. Give me a bucket. I don't care. Give me that Coke Zero. And my friend Tim here says that it gives you smooth brain. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes I do struggle with cognition the day after. That's today. But I love drinking it. And I got my big Coke Zero and I drink it all before I get home. It's a seven minute drive from McDonald's. I drink it all because I, again, I don't hide big things from my wife, but I hide little things. It's like when I was watching Love is Blind, it was late at night, it was like two in the morning. And Emma was like, leaned, turned over. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, could not admit I was watching Love is Blind doing drugs have you seen that meme just can't admit the actual thing you're doing it's just make it way worse i was planning on killing somebody it's like oh okay just anything but tell her that i was doing it's like i can't let her see the coke is coke zero i'm like ah. I like pour it into a stanley mug with the straw watch love is blind It's not quenching my thirst. That's a terrible way to quench your thirst. Have you woken up the day after your stomach's been empty and you've drank in an extra large Coke Zero? Most people don't. (laughs) It's a terrible experience on your bowels. I'm not getting into too much of it. That's not a way to quench your thirst, but hey, that's what some of us are doing. It's like the the reality of our, our human condition is that we will always be thirsty until we allow jesus to quench our thirst we have to allow him to meet us at our well we have all missed the standard we have to allow him to meet us at the well we have to allow him to do the work of a surgeon but we have to allow him to quench our thirst because he's the only thing he's the only one he's the god man he's he was he was god with skin on like we don't have to look further than jesus to know what he would have been like if he walked into whatever you got going on in your sexual world you, don't have to, you can look at Jesus walking into the world of this woman. He, he's been very clear what divorce looks like what his standard on divorce looks like. And you can actually watch him walk into that woman's world. This is our God. Walks into his world and doesn't just start to pick a fight. He starts leading her back to himself. And the reality is is that if we can understand that when we don't miss the mark, that God is walking into your world not to condemn you, but to begin to draw you to living waters, all of a sudden we've got a sexual ethic we can hang our hat on because it doesn't lead to confusion. It doesn't lead to death. It doesn't lead to um, relational troubles, it leads to the life that we've been looking for and that's why I have a lot of hope in what the Bible says not because I think it's favorable with culture but because I think it's favorable with how God has designed you and I and when we find him at the well and we allow him to do our work, his work and we drink from that that source that quenches our thirst life gets easier it just does doesn't mean that that stuff's not there or in our past or something we haven't dealt with. It just gets easier. It gets to the point actually where the woman goes and tells the entire town, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. It unlocked her from all of the shame she had experienced to the point where she's like, he told me it all. And that's what she's celebrating. What would it look like in your life whatever has jacked you up sexually? If you got to the type of freedom where you could go into a town, let's just start here. You'd be like, guys, Jesus just told me everything I ever did or happened to me sexually, and you got to meet him. Wow, what a freeing space that, that would be inside of our souls. Can we stand up in this place? just want to pray really quickly, and then we're going to just sing a worship song and get out of here. It's been a late night. Every eye closed, every head bowed, and I usually don't look out and really pay too much attention to this moment because it's between you and God, but I'm just gonna keep an eye to make sure nobody's looking. That's the only thing I can pay attention to. My hand's gonna be up in a moment as well. I just don't want anybody to look around because the question I'm about to ask is not meant to out anybody or anything like that. It's actually just meant for you to have a moment with God where you can allow him to step into your life with a healing power that only comes from a surrendered life to him. So my question is this. Have you missed or are you missing the standard around sexuality that God has laid out for us within his beautiful letter to us as children? And are you looking for his strength to allow him to meet you, to do the surgical work that needs to be done, to be your sustaining source? Do you need his strength tonight? Again, this can be anything from pornography to sleeping with people outside of marriage, to living with one another outside of marriage, to same-sex attraction. It doesn't matter what it is. With every eye closed, if you're going, no, I need God's strength. I need his strength to stay there and welcome his voice into my life. I need him to do the work that I haven't allowed anybody to do. There's some painful things in there and people have done stuff and I've done stuff and I need him, but I can't do it on my own. If that's you, every eye closed, can you just raise a hand? I believe that God's gonna heal some people here tonight. My hand's up. And if you have your hand up, the only thing I'm gonna say is that the majority of hands are up in this room. We should comfort you. You're not alone in this. You're not the sole woman walking to the well in the middle of the day to hide from your shame. No, we are all in this together. God is healing his children tonight. Let's pray. You can put your hands down and then put it back up to worship in a moment. God, I thank you. that God, when we talk about sexuality within your church, it's not this thing that we have to cower from. It's not something we have to be nervous about. It's not even something that we should be worried about. That God, we can actually walk into this conversation knowing that yeah, you have a standard. And yes, we miss it. And yes, that's why you had to come. Father, I'm thankful that you came and paid a price for us that would draw us closer to you. And right now, I pray for the strength for some of us to welcome your voice into our lives. God, I pray for your strength for some of us to allow you to do that hard work of starting to pull things out of us that we have hidden from all people around us or or the people that, that we feel shame around. God, I pray that you would quench the thirst that is deep inside of every one of us. God, tonight as we begin to just lay this before you and we begin to surrender this before you. God, we, we just pray that, God, you would allow us to be vulnerable with you out of this space. That, God, we wouldn't just have a moment with you, but that, God, you would just continue to do something new in our souls and in our minds and in our hearts. God, I pray that our church, base church, would be an example to this region of people that have found true sexual liberation, sexual liberation where, God, we find ourselves whole and and in you and, and, and cleansed by you. God, I pray that we would set an example of what it looks like to have clarity around a confusing topic that pertains to all of our lives. So, God, I pray right now that we would all walk out of this room a lot lighter knowing that you came and you died, not just for the other sins, but also for those ones that we're struggling with, even right now. We pray this in your mighty name, in Jesus' mighty name, and everybody say, amen. Thanks for listening to this message podcast. If today's message impacted you, be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and give it a rating. Life isn't meant to be done alone. We'd love to connect with you at connect.